Welcome to 050. I'm your host, Bruce Bradley, founder of recycling company First Mile. This is our Green Impact podcast, where we meet guests creating solutions for a zero carbon world. Property investment is big business, from shopping centers to office blocks, and the shard alone is valued at £2.5 billion. And it's estimated that the total value of UK commercial property is close to a trillion. But all this property has a big impact on our climate. The UN estimates that 40% of global carbon emissions from our buildings, both in their construction and throughout their operational lifetime. Connect investors' power with the desire for positive outcomes, and owners and investors in property can exert significant influence over how we manage property during its build and during its life cycle. Today's guest on 050 is stewarding one of the UK's biggest property investors through this emerging field to ensure property around the world is managed responsibly. Emily Hamilton is head of ESG at Savills Investment Management and ensures they're investing in property that is managed to high environmental, social and governance standards. Welcome to 050, Emily, and thank you for coming on the show. Thanks very much, Bruce. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. Well, I hope that intro sort of summed up where we are with things. I think you might have oversold me, but thanks. <laughs> <laughs> never. Guests often say that, never do. So we often, certainly in my sector, sort of more the environmental sector, we sort of often talk about ESG, environmental social governance, and then only really talk about the E bit in there. It'd be really helpful for listeners to sort of understand what ESG is 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 it only relevant to investors or should we all be thinking about it? Great, that's a really good question to start with, Bruce. E, S and G stands for Environmental, Social and Governance. And Savills IM, we use the UN PRI, which is the United Nations Principles of Responsible Investments definitions, in order to work out exactly what comes under the E, the S and the G. But for example, under E are things like climate change, adaptation, biodiversity, making sure that buildings are energy efficient. Under the S are things like modern slavery and ensuring we can eradicate that from our supply chains. Looking at health and well-being in offices and in buildings and in our own workplaces. And then under the G, for example, are things like governance, which is really topical right now because of COP26 and one of the biggest governance conferences you're going to have on what we're going to do about climate change. So governance in terms of what are the standards that are being set and how are people acting against those standards and doing things, not just saying that they're doing them. And what's the big thing that's coming out of COP or the big thing that's going to be discussed at COP26 that sort of influences the property and the built environment? Well, a lot of it will link back to the built environment because it's how we use communities every day and buildings. But in particular, there's a big push around sustainable finance and making sure that finance is doing the job it should do in getting to a green transition or a net zero transition, rather than it being just about how you're going to grow as much as you can without caring about the planet, which we all know now is not good enough. So the big things we're looking out for are things like the pledge from 300 banks that they're going to phase out fossil fuel investment 
which will be really interesting to see how that works. So the goal there is to divest out of harming investments such as fossil fuels, which we've actually seen quite a lot in the press and with sort of uh, universities changing their pension funds so they're no longer investing in fossil fuels. Is there a, such a thing as a clean property and a not so clean property? We've been having that debate a lot internally at Savills Investment Management. Should we buy a building if it's got poor energy performance or should we only be looking to get buildings that have really high energy performance? And actually, we think where we can help the most is not targeting all of those net zero assets. It's the other end. It's the ones that need to be retrofitted, need to be brought up to standard. And that might be over a slightly longer time frame rather than just doing it in the next five years or even net zero by 2030, particularly in countries that don't have clear decarbonisation pathways. But we do think that that's where we need to put our attention and our focus as we grow our business. So your model is very much around taking a building that potentially has a significant impact and cleaning it up. So it's the difference from it being, you know, a E or F rating, if you use the sort of domestic appliance rating, and what you try to do over time is build it up to being an A or B rating. That's the idea, yes. So that all buildings that we take on, as long as we're going to manage them for more than two years, have a clear net zero carbon pathway, ideally by 2040. It sounds there that the cost of or the impact of a building is, I guess if it's already built, it's about the operating impact. But what's the split between building something, which obviously has an impact because there's lots of embedded carbon in the in the building, versus operating it? If you operate and run a building for 50 years, is it going to be way, the operating impact going to be way higher than the sort of embedded carbon in the building? It really depends on the building type. So if it's an office, you'll probably see close to a 50-50 split. If it's residential, most likely to have a very high upfront embodied carbon cost because we're not very good at building energy efficient homes. But over the life cycle, it'll be less. And then for industrial, for example, it tends to be lower embodied carbon, but over its life cycle, it will have um, much higher operational. So it all depends on the building type and also the occupier, who's coming in and who's using it. There's no point in having a really high energy efficient building if an occupier comes in, decides actually, we'll just procure our own non-green energy. And then it's sort of well insulated, but if they're using fossil fuels to uh, heat or cool it, then... Exactly. And the ideal scenario is that you have all on-site renewable energy. So you have solar panels, you you have ways to um, solar heating and things like that, or even wind turbines where it might be doable. But the practicalities in an urban environment don't always make that easy. So you do have to look at actually like procuring energy through what they call power purchase agreements, where you agree with an energy supplier that you're going to take it rather than necessarily just relying on all on-site generation, which hopefully we'll get to eventually. But very few buildings currently, especially in an urban environment, are generating 100% of their own energy. That's why the occupier becomes so important. And what's on-site generation then? So presumably PV panels, solar panels? PV, solar. In my last company, we trialled wind turbines, but they weren't that efficient. So I think it's trying to look at how you capture the most from solar, air source, heat pumps, you know, things like that. And is air source going to work? I mean, there's quite a lot of chat at the moment around air source heat pumps um, in the domestic market and subsidies for it. Is it a proven technology or is it still early days on the air source heat pumps on commercial buildings? It's working. It's working on offices already. A lot of the new offices are being built. 
the evidence is showing so far that it's not ready to be used at scale, not necessarily because of the technology, but because of all the supply chain dependencies in relation to that technology and what's needed a kind of site level as well. So that's interesting on the air source heat pumps. In terms of a total city and the and the site generation of power, is it possible? Because the mayor in London, for example, came out quite a long, about, probably about eight or nine years ago now and said that, that they wanted the entire city to generate its own energy. Is that a possibility or is, is the city, because it's so dense, always going to rely on imports of renewable energy? I guess the honest answer is anything is possible. We can we can adapt our built environment. And I'm sure if you looked at how do you get more from the streets, we call the public realm, and how when you're walking down a street, if you could generate energy. But at the moment, the financial mechanisms for things like installing solar panels makes it very, very difficult to be able to have an entire city powered by its own means. I've been trying to get solar panels on my flat in the block that I live in, and it's really difficult having to go through the planning. Yeah, no, it is. And I think that the, the mayor for the whole of London has a scheme where you can get subsidised solar panels on buildings, but that's sort of, in theory, great. But if you're in a shared building or don't own the freehold, then it becomes a challenge. I think it's a bit of a distraction as well, focusing on renewables in a, in a city environment in the sense that 80% of buildings that are built today will still exist by 2050. And we've really got to look at retrofitting them and making them as airtight, but also have good health and well-being inside as well, rather than just getting fixated on one element, like how you generate the energy. It needs to be much more holistic in the thinking. That's very interesting because it is, I mean, the debate does... The Prime Minister sort of highlighted this in some ways with his three C's and a T, where he's talking about coal cars, which is about electric transport and coal energy. And people do tend to get fixated a little bit with energy around things. But you sort of alluded there to welfare and this sort of wider, coming back to the start of the podcast, this sort of wider purpose of the built environment, which it's not just buildings, it's also got this sort of social fabric as well. And as a property investor can you influence that social fabric of what happens in and around the buildings or are you very much trying to create the framework and then and then hope that good stuff happens within and around i think it again depends on how you're invested into that building if it's a development then absolutely you can really get lots of good social initiatives going, especially in the UK through things like community infrastructure levies. So, you know, getting more trees planted in the streets, looking at what you're doing with transport and whether you're putting more bus stops in, how you're making the site more accessible. There's a lot of really good things that can be done. When it's a built asset, and I think this is one of the issues with real estate investment management, is that you often have assets all over the country, or in our case, and in many, many investment managers' cases, all over the world, but they're not necessarily in a place-making variety in the sense that you don't have eight or nine buildings along a street. You might have one in South London, one in North London, one in Glasgow, and that place-making element, I think, is something that investment management needs to look to the REITs and the other property actors who have been doing much more kind of custodial placemaking and looking at how do we achieve that when you've only got assets, you know, in um, sporadic locations. 
But that's not to say that you can't influence the outcome. So, for example, uh, an asset in Sweden, we put in a bus stop because it would then help with accessibility from that. So I think you can do things, but it makes it more difficult than if you've got almost an estate that you're looking after. And I think it probably goes back to the importance of collaborating as well with others located close to you to see what you can do. Yes, I guess that, and that's right. So I guess if you're sort of going for a uh, very high-end office block or a shopping centre, then you're going to select those across the UK or across the world and not necessarily be interested in what happens around them or in those in those sectors. So that makes sense. And would an organisation like a business improvement district help work around the sort of collaboration to make sure the place became such rather than just a silos of development? Definitely. I think business improvement districts have a massive role to play. And you're seeing that in London, where they're kind of galvanising lots of property actors together. But I also think investors and asset managers have a role to play in collaborating with each other for how they're going to ensure that any developments are built have these social elements taken into consideration. So we've now mandated that all new developments that we're doing have to undergo a social value assessment so we can understand what the outcomes will be and what can be realistically implemented. That's amazing. And what's the sort of the main challenges that if you do a... um, Social values. Social values. What are sort of the low-hanging fruit in those areas? Because I think the social element of it is super interesting. I think it goes back to, first of all, really understanding your location. So that's something we consider anyway when we're buying a building, when developing. There's a lot focused on the location. What's the accessibility like? How are we going to make it more accessible to others? So I think that's a really important aspect. But also thinking about the community around and what the community needs are and what could you be doing with a development to help facilitate that. So if you are, for example, building a new office block what are you doing to ensure you've got good health and well-being within that building but more importantly what are you also doing to ensure that you're going to help work with the local community whether that's retailers or local residents to see how they can use that building as well I think we have loads and loads of buildings that operate between nine to five and in my view I think we could have more that are more accessible to people at to be used for other purposes you know more communities could book buildings and things like that so I think there's some things there but I think we've only just started one of the my favorite case studies I've been learning about is with our Polish shopping center in Katowice and they have basically introduced quiet hours whereby people who may have autism or other learning difficulties or sort of neurodiversity, which means that they find being really difficult to be in a crowded shopping centre, can come in at certain times on Saturdays and also on the Fridays, and they're quiet to then help make sure that they feel like they're in a more comfortable environment rather than being in a really busy environment. And to be fair, as an introvert, I think I'd even prefer that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it's um, really simple to do. And it just is organizing, you know, the schedule a a little more uh, sensibly around people with different setups, really. So very interesting. So coming back to the environment and just looking at the environment, what key impacts you believe you can have and are having in the sort of investment portfolio? Because I think it's really interesting that we've now got investors that are really taking the environment seriously because the money needs to flow through the system and do you feel like you're starting to be heard do you feel like you're starting to have an impact and where do you think the sort of biggest impact focusing in on the environment is that you can have 
That's a really good question. I think the biggest impact that we can have is how we're engaging with our occupiers and our investors in the sense of the two biggest things that you need to tackle are climate mitigation and climate adaptation from an environmental perspective. So from the mitigation, that's looking at what you're doing if your building has heat stress or near flooding, which is happening a lot in the UK. In other countries, it's forest fires, like in Turkey and in America. And then in Asia, it's things like big tropical storms and how prepared are we for those things, as well as real significant heat stress. And how's that going to affect people inside those buildings, particularly if it's more residential and senior living? So what do we think we could do? It's the engagement with the occupiers to be able to start to get that conversation flowing of how do we work together to sort out a building? Historically, it's been landlords do one thing, occupiers do another, and they only really talk to each other when they're paying rent or they've got some difficult conversations. And what we want to do is bring those two things together. And we're trying that conversation through using the Better Buildings Partnership and their owner-occupier forum. And Savills is co-chairing that forum along with NatWest, so that we've now got, I think, about 30 members who have joined and we're trying to get some really big occupiers as well. So I think that's what real estate investment management can be doing. It's getting those connections going so the money can then flow in the right places. And do you feel as the property investor that the if you take a sort of a big corporate like Microsoft, who've declared to go carbon neutral and carbon negative, are they driving you towards a solution? Or is it quite often that Savills and your work are saying, come on, come on, you know, occupier, you really need to think about how you do this better and we can do loads here. And I know, I know you're going to say it's a bit of both, but is it moving more towards that you've got some big occupiers in there who are really wanting to go for this or are you driving it? I think at the moment, what we're seeing is that real estate is having to drive it. There's a lot of commitments out there, but they're not yet completely filtering down into these people who are involved in the day-to-day decisions. And I think it's going to happen. I think probably after COP, it will happen even more. But a lot of it is to do with not necessarily understanding the importance of buildings and thinking that if you switch all your energy to green, job is done rather than having to retrofit the building. So there's a big education piece needing to be done there. And the few of us are working together. It's also the supply chain that that the building influences around it as well, which I imagine has quite a significant impact, you know, depending on what's happening in the building. Definitely. I think it depends on what the building's being used for as well. You know, if you take waste, for example, and recycling, Having a shopping centre and all the occupiers actively signed up to being able to recycle their waste is going to have a monumental impact compared to potentially residential, where you often have less control because of council policies. And also things like deliveries. I mean, when you were at Grosvenor, they were looking at consolidating deliveries in and out of the building. And so there's a, there's a lot of things you can influence because you sort of have your much more control over that building. Yeah, I think there's a fair few things. But the priority at the moment, I think real estate is seeing, is to focus on this climate adaptation and climate mitigation, because what's becoming clear is that there's a brown discount from buildings that are not going to be fit for the future. And there's a green premium emerging for the ones that are. So we want to work out where the money is going 
at the moment, if an investor was trying to make a decision, they put it into a building that is going to get the, the green premium. And do you think, just going back a step, because you you said that you didn't think yet that the, that the sort of ambition has yet trickled down to people on the ground necessarily. And I think a lot of, a lot of CEOs and leaders of businesses, I think they've signed up to net zero commitments, perhaps if you're very cynical, that they won't be around to see whether they happen or not. And I think there has been a big strategic shift, which is fantastic to say we're going to go net zero by 2030. In the example earlier of Microsoft, they're going to go back to their original emissions from 1975. That all sounds great. But do you think it's going to be trickled down to the people who are actually doing the delivery of these programs in the next six months? Or is it going to take six years? And are they getting funded, do you believe, to deliver them? Or is it all too early at the moment? I think it is trickling down. It depends what success looks like in the next six months as compared to the next six years. I think all these companies are realizing the importance of needing to rapidly change the way they are doing things. I don't think they're necessarily being honest about the fact that they may not have been doing them as well as they could have. And I think that's part of the conversation that every business needs to have and be really honest and say, do you know what? We've not done enough in the past and we need to do a lot more. One of the conversations I've been finding really energizing at Savills IM is this willingness to want to do better and to actually accept that they're not doing enough and we're not doing enough. And I think that's really good. The main reason the action isn't happening, it feels like it's more to do with at the real estate level, a skills gap rather than a lack of willing. So there's a massive skills gap. Everyone's trying to recruit. There is not enough people for what's needing to be done and lots of other industries have had time to really kind of get together and think about how they're going to tackle this and real estate is arriving to this whole net zero even sustainability quite late in terms of collectively so they've got they have got a big skills gap and I hear that all the time, really, which is brilliant to hear, but slightly frustrating when you and I <laughs> me tried to like bang the drum for a long time. If people were going to university now or choosing their A-levels, what would your advice be in terms of to get skills in the sustainability area? Can you do it with any course or do you need to take particular courses or have just a different approach? I'd say do what you're passionate about. If you really love history, then fine, study history. But if you want to be contributing towards climate change and adaptation, then I think you need to be able to be looking at um, sustainable finance skills, economics, business. But also what's more important, and I'd say paramount, is practical experience. So get involved in volunteering in your local community. All those things that are going to help give you that extra oomph when it comes to having to go through you know, your UCAS form and, and all those things. It isn't enough anymore to go and study a subject. We need to be practitioners. And the earlier you can get involved in practicing, um, the better. You know, Greta Thunberg has not gone to university. She is one of the most influential climate activists in the world. That's all from her practicing what she says. Absolutely. So I think the key word there is passion and practicality and go out and, and do stuff. You don't need to you don't need to wait. And talking about passion. What happened in your life that got you into the environmental field, Emily? I mean, I mean, you've just done huge amount to influence the built environment in London and elsewhere around the world now with Savills. So how did you get into the sort of environmental field? I've always been passionate about the environment. I think my first word, much to my uh, mum's displeasure, was bird. So <laughs> it's something that I massively care about. 
And I was a big bird watcher when I was younger, although it wasn't cool then. And so one of my big regrets was I wasn't as open about, you know, all my nature and passions as I think young people now can be and really positively display it. So for me, it's what I've always loved. But I didn't want to do environmental things as part of my job until I finished university. So I didn't study anything to do with environmental um, sustainability until I got to my third year. And then I looked at environmental ethics and it was ethics that really got me convinced. And I wrote my dissertation about environmental ethics and why do we have a moral responsibility? And once you start looking into all of the definitions around sustainable development and you get into all the theory, it just, it's blindingly obvious that you would protect future generations whilst delivering and meeting current generations need. And I think I was just like, well, why aren't we doing this? I just don't understand. And so from then on, I just wanted to work out in particular why businesses aren't doing it. And it's taken 15 years to start to get to that point. But I think it's a really exciting place to be now because sustainability is the hot job that everyone seems to want. And through all of the sort of excitement now and activity, what does success look like to you? And what do you think is the biggest hurdle for getting there? And that could be you personally or sort of, you know, you, the planet or the built environment. I mean, what, how, how do you succeed at the end of your life looking back whether, whether you've been successful in your mission? I think starting off with for our business, I think success is basically being able to funnel the investment decisions and the financial outcomes to ensure that climate adaptation, health and well-being, nature restoration is all followed through. So it's making sure the money follows where it needs to go, as well as people being energized and excited about what we've been doing. And we're doing a big global activation session internally at the end of the month to relaunch a sort of a new strategy, which is exciting. I think personally, I just want to be looking back in, say, 30 years time and know that at this point in time, we did everything we could to stop ourselves becoming extinct. And success would be that all of my friends' children are actually in a world that is going to be filled with nature and that we have managed to restore what we've lost, not just got to net zero. That is what success would really look like. I really like that sort of linking the uh, fact that you were bird watching into a world that's full of nature again is a nice way of thinking about it rather than big metal machines sucking out carbon dioxide and in a deserted place and from a listener's perspective what do they what should they be doing differently to help succeed on this quest of emily hopefully it's a quest of all of us i still think it's where you put your money is going to really help Look at where your pension is invested, who you're spending your money with, what suppliers, the energy companies, are they green tariffs? Because now we know what a lot of the solutions are, that they're just not being scaled up. And the main reason for that is there is a lack of finance. But there's one stat that I'd like to leave you with, Bruce, and that's real estate is worth 280 trillion. So we don't have a lack of finance we have a lack of will to channel that finance and so I think everybody should be looking at where they're placing their money and what you can do to help drive that personally as well excellent and presumably if you're listening to this sitting in a office block or another big commercial building try and figure out what your landlord or your investor and the owner of your building is doing about this because they should be able to answer some questions I think 
definitely. And whether they've got a renewable energy tariff and a net zero pledge is a really good place to start. And what's coming up, Emily, that you're super excited about? Hopefully in two weeks' time, everything's going to be solved and everyone in Glasgow is going to have uh, fixed things for us. I think we've got to have a bit of tempered expectations around that, Bruce. I think it's seeing it as a starting point. Glasgow is continuing on conversations. It's not this amazing end point that the media would have it to be. I think what I'm really excited about is something working on outside of work, which is through a charity called National Park City. And our mission is to get 25 cities by 2025 to become national park cities. And London is already underway. The mayor's declared it um, a national park city. And we've got a big community rangers program where we've got people in every borough helping to promote London becoming greener, healthier and wilder. But we now have Glasgow, Adelaide and several other cities that are on their way as well. And there's a couple that are close to declaring. So that's going to be very exciting to see and how we can sort of work collaboratively to make more cities have nature in them. Brilliant. And how do um, how do people find out? Is there a website for National Park Cities? There is. It's nationalparkcity.org or follow us on Twitter and we're also on Instagram as well. Perfect. And then people can find out more about that. It sounds like an amazing initiative. And is there a timeline for when London's going to become a National Park City? So London technically already is. So one of the criteria for becoming a national park city is that you have to have at least 50% of London wards, it has to be grassroots led, as in community wards have to declare they want to become a national park city. And that political lobbying was done back in 2019. And the mayor of London declared, what we're now looking at is how you make that work in practice, and put in the kind of the infrastructure And one of the things we've been working on is setting up a developer forum whereby we're bringing in developers from across London to have a discussion about how do they make their developments greener, healthier and wilder as well. But in some ways, it's good that you're not aware because I think we need to do a lot more to continually push this idea that London is a national park city. And that's something I think the mayor of London wants to be working on as well. So the more we can get the message out to people, the better. Absolutely. And I think um, it, it, probably bad timing as well if it happened in 2019. There was something else happened after that that seemed to suck up most of people's uh, attention. So I'm definitely going to check the uh, National Park City out. London's actually a very green city and there's, there's a lot of trees already and green spaces in the city, which people tend to forget about. It's 48% green. And one of the objectives is to get us to be at least 50% green. But there's been a new journey handbook that's been developed to help cities navigate how to become a national park city. And one of the things you wanted to be clear about is that you don't have to be a super green city. You just need to be able to work out how you can get more of your citizens connected to nature and create more nature. And hopefully that increase in green space and accessible parks and things like that will come. Brilliant. Just moving on to help for the listeners now. What podcast are you listening to at the moment, Emily, that our listeners might be interested in? One of my favourite podcasts, which when I go running, I absolutely love, and I'm just giggling to myself, is um, John Richardson and the Future Noughts. It's fantastic. And it just puts a different, more human spin on a lot of these very, sometimes dark conversations that we're having to have and actually adds some sort of light and hope and optimism. So I really recommend John Richardson and the Future Noughts. And he has brilliant people on there explaining the uh, problem. So now I definitely recommend that one as well. And um, looking at green businesses or either existing businesses or 
new businesses? What's the most exciting business out there, in your opinion, at the moment? Any business that is going to put nature at the heart of what they're doing, so if that's investing into things like peatland restoration or forestry or even cities and and greening, I think that's going to be a really interesting space to be because we know how important it is in terms of tackling both climate and the ecological emergencies together. Excellent. Brilliant. And there's lots and lots of people innovating around this area at the moment. And finally, Emily, we have this thing called the First Mile Planet Saver Hall of Fame. What or who would you put in it? I really want to say David Attenborough because I absolutely love him. But I think I would put in all of those people who are up in Glasgow right now protesting outside the climate summit and are doing their bit to share their voices on what they think needs to be done and to be really holding these global leaders to account because it's not easy being green and having that resilience to keep going I think is really important. So all of the local community activists, I put them there. That is brilliant and I love that because the... uh... We're all going to go and hang out in the future in the First Mile Hall of Fame, and it's suddenly just got a whole lot busier, so that's brilliant. There's going to be a party going on in there. It'd be great. Emily, it's been amazing having you on Zero Five O. Thank you for being a wonderful guest and super knowledgeable around all things around the built environment, the environmental impact, and the social impact as well. Very interesting. We've heard about National Park City and how listeners can find those. How do people um, learn more about Savills and is there a specific website for Savills uh, Investment? Our website is www.savillesinvestmentmanagement.com and we've got a responsible investment page as well. But we'll be adding a lot more things to that over the coming weeks and months. So keep watching this space. And there's already a huge amount going on there. Emily, it's been absolutely fantastic having you on the podcast. Thank you very much for being my guest. Thank you very much, Bruce, for having me. It's been a pleasure. I'm Bruce Bratley, and you've been listening to Zero Five O, where we meet remarkable people creating solutions for a zero carbon world. Keep listening to all episodes on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Zero Five O.